Hi everyone, welcome to the Queer Readers Podcast hosted on our Discord server. I'm Rachel, one of the hosts. And I'm Ella, another host. And today we are talking about The Heiress by Molly Greeley. And for this one, content warnings include drug addiction and period typical homophobia. And the period being, oh no, is it Victorian? So this is like (laughs) the same time as Pride and Prejudice. It's like eighteen ten something, like early seventeenth century. Is that what you call it? Yeah, early seventeenth century. No nineteenth, right? Because the first century was zero to nine nine nine. Oh, is it the nineteenth century? (laughs) Like, (laughs) no, like right now we're in. The 21st century. In the 21st. Yeah. Because the the first century began with the year one. Okay, so yeah, the 18th century. 18th century. No, 19th. 1800s is 19th century. Yeah. I'm sorry, but it's true. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I promise. (laughs) I'm older and wiser, and I know the centuries. (laughs) Anyway, it's it has some homophobia that would be typical for the time period of the book, which is the early 1800s. Does that work? I think. Yeah, you're right. I'm wrong. <laughs> no, you, were, you were unsure, so you don't have to consider yourself wrong. <laughs> okay, you well, got to add one or subtract one. It's one of the other. <laughs> yes, it's add one. Add one is the thing. Math, you know, we're more readers than um, math Uh, concept people. Yeah. But I will try to give sort of a summary, very basic summary of the plot, because it doesn't have a super um, complex plot in terms of plot events. But so the heiress follows Anne de Berg, who in Austin's Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice novel um readers of of austin's work will recall that anda berg is the uh fiance since childhood of fitzwilliam darcy and the daughter of catherine de berg who in the book i was i was reading some other reviews while i was preparing for our chat and i think this is probably true but it was noted that in pride and prejudice anda berg never has a line and so (laughs) i think that that makes her a very interesting and and um, exciting choice for a novel um, about her because um, she really had no voice in those books. And that's kind of what this novel is about because in this story, we learn that Anne was um, sick as a, as a young infant, prescribed laudanum, and has taken it her entire life. So she is in a state of... Um, Adelment from her laudanum at all times. It's dispensed to her daily by her nurse, and that continues into her adult life. And um, she, at the age of 29, kind of has this awareness of her state and that the laudanum might be impeding her rather than helping her. And so she breaks free of her mother's control enough to go to London and um, try to free herself from her addiction. And it's a pretty lovely book from that point forward. I mean, the writing is lovely throughout, but I would say it's like 
really not a very heavy or um, the subject matter makes it sound like it might be, but it's really like a, in a lot of ways, a very light read. The The writing is, is lovely. And even though you do really feel for Anne and her circumstances, I just always had this sense that she was going to figure it out. And it's an uplifting book in that way. Um, I probably left out some details, but I don't want to get into spoilers. However, there's um, this book is a sapphic book in that I wouldn't say it has a romance forward plot. The or the the romance is not thrust of the plot. It's really more about Anne's life as a whole and kind of coming into her own. But her her sexual awakening is certainly an element of the book, and because the writing is so sensual. There are a lot of lovely, um, subtly erotic um, statements and lines as she sort of discovers her um, sexuality. Um, and there's just a lovely romance element to the book, too. And I feel like that's enough to say about the plot. I don't know. I don't want to summarize it, but um, it's definitely a great book to read if you're a fan of Austin or even if you're not. You would not need to read Pride and Prejudice to enjoy this book. So. I feel like we had the author um, join us in the server for a question and answer session. And um, that was great, great, because I had so many questions about how this story came to be, because I find it so fascinating that it fits well into the kind of canon of Pride and Prejudice, if you will, even though it has this, to me, like, huge author created element with Anne's laudanum addiction but I swear now that it is exists it feels like a great answer for why the character was the way that she was in Pride and Prejudice does that make sense it's like um it made me rethink how Anne is treated in that book um, and it kind of made me feel bad for how I sort of dismissed and dehumanized her, even though she was just a character and a work of fiction. But she's so easy to dismiss and not think of in that book. And then in this one, it's all about her. And um, apparently this dispensing laudanum very freely, even to children, was really common at the time. So it's a totally possible life story for someone of her um you know, of her time and class. So I thought it was really a brilliant premise. And then the execution was lovely. Just the writing is lovely. And I'm all for some sensual, sapphic, kind of subtle um, and poetic descriptions about um, all of those. All of those scenes were lovely without being too, like, too overt. If you're not, if you're someone who doesn't really like to read explicit scenes, I think you would still enjoy this book, every page of this book, because it doesn't really go too um, into too much detail. But the details it does include are just lovely. So I loved it. Um, those are my kind of initial thoughts. What do you think, Ella? Yeah, it fits really seamlessly into the world of Pride and Prejudice. Like, I can totally believe that this is what happened to Anne in, like, the story of Pride and Prejudice. And it's what I really hope, like, kind of, is how she ended up in the story. Because, again, like you, I just dismissed her. I feel like she is so overshadowed by her very formidable mother that even if, like, it's her illness isn't down to laudamum, it's 
because she's got this vulnerability and she's that was such a domineering mother is who, who controls her life to everything. I was like, her life just seems so bleak and dull. But it's like really, again, yeah, uplifting to seeing her take control of that. Because I think what really shocked me is just how long she was on Lordaman for and how resistant Catherine was in ever seeing her improve that she was seemed to almost enjoy and being in such a vulnerable state all the time and it it's things that like her life was just so restricted it was she wasn't able to read any books because it was deemed too it would be like too much for her imagination it would like make her feel ill reading like fictional books so she wasn't allowed to like she could she only really read those like awful sermons about how women should act mm-hmm. and it was, it was quite a delight like seeing her being introduced to books and like just having this deep enjoyment reading them y- yes I, I i mean there it's so satisfying to see her transition from being in the shadow of her mother, as you said, and under the influence of laudanum to discovering herself, truly discovering herself and the world without that veil over everything. It was, I mean, it's it's a little bit sad, of course, because you have those 29 years where that wasn't available to her, but it, it's, it's really thrilling to see her get to um, live more fully. And of course, an aspect of that is that she is the heiress as the title suggests i mean she has this very rare situation of being a woman who can inherit and has inherited i suppose like due to her health her mother is managing the um rosings estate but anne is like the one who is who it belongs to which i don't think i really picked up on that completely reading pride and prejudice but she has this ability to live freely in ways others wouldn't because of the way her tie to the property is set up. So she doesn't have to get married in order to keep it. So that part of it was, was symbolic too. I thought of this, of her ability to kind of have a fuller existence than, than so many other women would be able to at that time. I also liked how whilst her world was very restricted, she still had sort of avenues of support and kind of while other characters were almost powerless it was like when she was younger her father thought that the opium wasn't doing much and like tried to take a sea bathing in Brighton but given that she was basically going through withdrawal they thought that she was just getting sicker so again put back on the Lord of a minute. It's also like frustrating that he kind of clued on when she was so young that he should do something about it. And I understand if if you don't know much about, you know, withdrawal symptoms and such, and you don't know that you got to just almost, you know, you got to ride it out as she does when she's older. And it's just through that one trip, he just abandons any attempt and trying to get her better just because of how forceful Catherine is. But then you get people like Miss Hall as well, her governess later on, who can't do a lot given her position and how dependent it is on Catherine. Mm-hmm. But she still kind of like sips in these like small rebellious 
notions like giving her poetry to read instead of sermons and insisting that you know she has so much privilege and she has so much power if she could only like reach out and take it and that is kind of what one of the things that spurs her into leaving and it's it's also i really loved her relationship with colonel fitzwilliam and how supportive he is and how he knows something's going on and is makes it so clear to her that if she ever needed any help he was the one he could turn to and i feel like she probably wouldn't have left that situation if she hadn't known that because she immediately turns to the to colonel fitzwilliam and goes to his house in london and that's where she you know goes through withdrawal because that's where she feels safe yeah absolutely and his in his situation is such a contrast to hers because he has like the male privilege but he doesn't have the property right so um i thought that in addition to him being someone who is kind to her they have this kind of role reversal too where he's like he is um a man of good family and all those things but his uh you know, he's a little hampered in his ability to, um, you know, like, wield power even within their family. But he still is willing to do that to help her. And I, I thought that that said, um, that said a lot. I mean, I think that character is well depicted in Pride and Prejudice, too. But without that, without that sort of safe haven, she might not have been able to break free. It's It's kind of like in the scenes from her childhood where she's with her governess it's like um her governess is is clearly bothered by the laudanum but isn't in a position she doesn't feel to like really speak up about it because it's not and you can tell she has a lot of conflicted feelings about that and she's in in some ways you know she introduces Anne to poetry and kind of pushes the envelope a little bit on what her mother might consider the right kind of material for Anne to be reading. I mean, it's all very, you know, Christian, but it's not, but it's not dry, whatever. I mean, it kind of talks about that, how she, she gave Anne things to read that um, she thought would help her expand a little bit on what she'd been offered before. And in all these ways, she's this figure that's very kind, but she also has this really unyielding um, sort of, rigid Christian sort of view on things that we learn about when Anne sort of makes a mistake and reveals that she has a crush on her. And then the governess is like, I got to get out of here. Cause she's so um, like, I apparently feels that she can't remain if that um, sentiment exists between if that sentiment exists from Anne and, it, and she makes it clear that it's like a sinful um, sentiment. So that character to me was, was interesting because it was like she kind of pushed Anne in the right direction but also had these this other side where she was not um a perfect character you know a perfect person by any means because she's not open to which so many people wouldn't have been at the time but she's like certainly not open to the idea that Anne might um you know be interested in women that that would be um terrible but also she recognizes the injustice of what Anne's going through but also she's not going to risk her job in the um, earlier part of that um, situation in order to 
in order to speak up and try to help in or doesn't feel like it would be Reese, like anyone would receive it well, which is probably true. I mean, who was Catherine DeBerg going to listen to? Probably nobody. But anyway, all of that was really interesting to me that there was like almost you had this feeling that maybe the governess is going to be the one to help her. And while I think what she said to Anne about the laudanum definitely helped Anne get to a point of realization, she isn't really the person that helps Anne um, ultimately. Like Anne kind of really has to help herself. Interesting as well, because you find out that the governess, when she leaves, she kind of has one last act of trying to help Anne, but Anne doesn't discover it until about a decade later because they, in order for Anne to practice them, her writing, they would like kind of send letters to each other and keep it in this little like cubby hole thing. And it's Anne just ignores it for like a decade because it's too painful, like a reminder that the governess gone and it's related to this like incident when said that like she wanted to marry her and so she looks in it yeah 10 years later and that's when she finds miss hall's whole letter talking about because her brother got addicted to laudanum and so she recognized the signs in and and told her you got more information from her brother about his withdrawal symptoms and how he was able to get off it and really Mm -hmm. kind of take back control of his life but it's not information she finds out because it's again i was just shocked about how long she was on it when i heard the premise of the book i really thought that like when she was around 18 or so or 20 that that's when she would finally get control of her life but it's but it really just takes so long and that just yeah it shocked me yeah yeah, and it, I think it was oh, horrifying realization that if she had stayed with Catherine, she would have been on it maybe her entire life. Which yeah. I got like addicted since you were a baby for the whole of your life. Well, Just, and she has so many, like, she does have some health issues, like her just disinterest in food and, and things like that, that, um, make you wonder if it would have materially shortened her life too or made her vulnerable to other illness or something so it's like um in addition to stripping her of a lot of personhood was it gonna expose her to like a different kind of um mortality i don't know yeah it's really it's really horrifying because apparently it was not unusual you know, for this to happen. So sad. But I think that um, one of the things I appreciated about the book was that nobody was really a villain or a hero. (laughs) You know, everybody kind of had flaws that made all the characters feel very human, including Catherine DeBerg, who, I I, I mean, you, you mentioned this, that she... Might, might have taken some pleasure in Anne's dependency on the laudanum because it kind of gave, it made Anne easier to kind of keep under her thumb. And I think there was some truth to that, almost like a Munchausen situation, you know, but, but also I don't know if it was partially just her commitment to having been right. Like back when Anne was little, she needed this and 
Catherine DeBerg trusts the doctor, so she authorizes it. And, like, for her to admit that that had been the wrong choice was just adverse to her whole character for her to ever have been wrong or at fault. So I thought it was maybe a little bit of both of those things. Definitely. I think she, Catherine is so well depicted in this book. I, I honestly enjoyed every scene that she was in. Like most of the time she's terrible, but you do get these moments where you do feel really sympathetic towards her because Again, Anne was she was a baby who just cried all the time, and you know I've never had kids, but I can't imagine like the torment of just not being able to soothe your baby, and then a doctor gives you this, you know what he says is a safe drug, and it it stops her crying like she's better, and I I understand why she would, you know, keep her on it, especially when. She's got all the backing of this doctor. I think this doctor is equally to blame in that he keeps it on it for the entire time. He never recommends that she should go off it and that it can't see that the health problems are being caused by it. And I think Catherine is it's definitely done out of a place of love. Like, and as you know, Molly Greenlee says in our QA, it's it's a very twisted, narcissistic kind of love. Mm-hmm. That it's kind of the, like it's great that she feels it for Anne, but it's done a lot more harm than good, and it's a very self-centered kind of love. I feel yes, yes, but not without some redeeming qualities. I guess like toward the end <laughs> yeah. of the book, toward the end of the book, I thought it was really funny when um I don't remember the exact line, but. Anne is, like, going somewhere, or I don't know. She's changed her hair. I can't remember. Anyway, she she's, like, hanging out with her mother before going somewhere else. And um, Catherine's like, well, you're, like, you did something different with your hair or whatever. And Anne's like, yeah, I, I guess. And Catherine DeBerg is like, well, if, if, you're, if you're determined on this not marrying thing, like, you probably better change it because... Your people are going to want to marry you. Like, I don't know. You look hot. You look like a, a lady <laughs> a guy would want to marry. But she doesn't say that. She's just like, well, that's the wrong choice if you're really not going to get married because you're giving people the wrong idea. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. don't appease the male gaze if you don't want it, you know, making um, proposals to you. So I thought that was really cute. Moments like that where she, which is a a great representation of the character that I think everybody likes, even though she you, you love to hate her in Pride and Prejudice too, because she just has this like razor sharp um, ability to insult without <laughs> her insults in in the book. This one and Pride and Prejudice are just really it's hard not to enjoy her for that reason she's just yeah, so I think like another her. moment where this is when Anne has gone back and she's taken control of Rosings and put her mother in like the dowager house and I think she's changed some curtains or something some sort of furniture thing and like Lady Catherine gives her like gives her a compliment about it but it's like a really backhanded one but like Anne is still like Oh, she actually gave me a compliment. She like approves of something I did, and she still has that yearning for her mother's approval. And I did again. I enjoyed every scene that Cat like Catherine's in. I think she's a a great character. 
and like all her com- like I love the confrontation between Anne and Catherine when Anne has come back from being in London and getting better. She is just because she's she just feels like she's right about everything, and you know that she's not, but she is just so. Yeah, she has such yeah, like she has such conviction. Yeah, in her yeah, and she's right and right about everything, which is you know stuff that you get from Pride and Prejudice when she's like, I know the best way of packing, and I know the best way to put shelves in a cupboard. Like I'm right about everything, and yes. that translates into her daughter's health, which is or I like. Mean, if I had wanted to do that, I would have been the best at it. You know, like, <laughs> that's the thing. In Pride yeah. I was never, like, like what's the line in Pride and Prejudice? Something about, like, if well, Anne wasn't, yeah, yeah, yeah if Anne wasn't dick, she'd be the yeah, best. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're okay, but if my daughter knew how to play, she would be awesome. Like, <laughs> <laughs> she would be so much better. <laughs> yeah, it was so funny. Yes, proud of her daughter yeah and I, I almost wonder he- what would have happened if she hadn't have been you know this kind of quite um screamy baby and if she hadn't been put on opium by the doctor if the doctor had suggested something else like how would Han have turned out just like Catherine would she have been like quite snooty <laughs> well this just this goes out to all the screamy babies in Victorian England. You gotta quiet down. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah. I agree. I think it it invites a lot of questions. And um of course if she hadn't been the way she was, she probably would have had to marry her cousin. So you know, I don't know. It's like in a way her invalidity led to her happy ending in this story anyway because of course she's um not interested in men or being married and to a man and so it's like she was sort of spared that because she had this opm dependency you know what i mean i think if she had been well like her her family would have steered her into a different adulthood from an earlier point in her life and I don't know if she would have had the perspective to um disrupt that she might have just gone along with it you know because I think her her being kind of an outsider even as a child gave her this sort of insight into herself she was like her own companion really um so I don't know like maybe the happy ending that she has in the book was only made possible by her by the way that she lived the first 29 years of her life i don't know that's one way to look at it no that's very true maybe she would have ended up married to darcy yeah and like her um lesbianism was the least of the problems there like they were not a compatible (laughs) they were not compatible (laughs) you know one thing that we we asked in our um conversation with the author on the server was um like what the depiction of Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet they're not in this book a lot but they do appear kind of in from Anne's point of view in the scenes that we know from Pride and Prejudice kind of early in the book and passing and then they're a part of then later scenes that would have that are not you know part of the Pride and Prejudice sequence of events so do you have any thoughts about that like as a person who's read Pride and Prejudice, 
how did you feel about the treatment, if you will, of Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet in this book? I think it was still very, you know, true to the Pride and Prejudice books. They don't come off the best. Like, there's um, a line that really stuck out to me that Darcy says when he, because he visits Rosings like every year when he's a child, um, to, and it, it's meant to like strengthen the bond between Anne and Darcy. It doesn't really work that well. And this is like, because Colonel Fitzwilliam is like, very nice and attentive and is like actively trying to talk with Anne even though a lot of the time she is kind of in this drug stupor Darcy just wants to ignore her and so there's a moment where Fitzwilliam confronts Darcy being like you know she's you meant to be getting married like talk to her and he's like well no offense but how am I meant to converse with a doll Mm -hmm. and he just he definitely has this very I don't want to say patronizing, but he just—he definitely doesn't see her as a person. I yeah, and that, and that did feel to... true to him, you know, or at least as we know him in Pride and Prejudice, especially at the beginning. So yeah, yeah, but that line was cutting for sure. Oh yeah, it's definitely if it's and he was, I guess, never comfortable around her, and when he's not comfortable around people, he gets quite rude. Whereas Kenneth Fitzwilliam is a lot more friendly, and really does try you know, to find some sort of connection with Anne because it's like, well, you're my family. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, like we touched on in the earlier part of the book, if you think of, if you've read this book or you're thinking about kind of thinking of this character and what her life would have been like in any, you know, any different um anything that fits in with the plot of Pride and Prejudice, if you just kind of think about her a little bit, you kind of rethink that dismissal that even as a reader, you probably had of her in the story. Like she's just not a character that elicits a lot of feelings from the reader. She's just sort of in the way. And her mom is the one who you think about and kind of notice in the story. And um, so that is definitely how she's treated too by the, the main characters in Pride and Prejudice. And so it just, it did make me feel a little bit differently about them, especially Elizabeth, because I felt like she's young and maybe just not doing her best work, but like she too is just very dismissive and sort of disdainful of Anne as like this silent person who is so different from Elizabeth and is this privileged character who isn't um you know exercising much autonomy from what anyone can tell and it i I think there's like a disdain for that that comes from the elizabeth bennett character that is sort of aligned with her flaw i guess which um makes her makes her a character that um that so many of us have been attached to that you know you can't it's hard to really fall in love with a perfect character so all that to say i thought um I thought this book succeeded in deepening the way that I think about the material of Austin and also standing on its own as just a really lovely and at times harrowing, but not too, but not too harrowing um, story about a woman kind of coming into herself and, and taking power. And I mean, in that way, the ending makes up for 
makes up for everything you go through because she's so free at the end. And that would have been so unusual at the time that it's, um, it's nice that she is so aware of and so appreciative and really relishes and does her best to honor that position that she is lucky enough to have. So it's a, it's a good and satisfying book. I would say I would recommend it more on, um, the whole Elizabeth Bennet thing because I always remember from the book is that she's when she meets Anne and realizes oh this is the person that is you know meant to marry Darcy she's like ah oh, shit this woman is just like what is she she's just listless and a bit pathetic and uh, almost is like a bit delighted in in kind of how she perceives Anne and being like oh well this is great you know Darcy and Anne are just like perfect for each other both two people that I have no respect for and they're gonna get married like that's brilliant and she's so yeah just kind of treats it as like a joke almost um that that's you know who Darcy is meant to marry and then it's in in this book you get this um because Anne is really quite taken with Elizabeth when she comes over because she's so outspoken towards her mother talks mm-hmm. to her in a way that like no one has really talked to her before and like she definitely has a bit of a crush on her. Yeah. Like she can kind of <laughs> that she has for her. And she's just like so mortified. And I'm like, you almost mm-hmm. wish that uh Elizabeth had just been like a little bit kinder, had just like reached out in some way, but not really in her character, but it's just it was painful to read that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And it's just like so taken by her i know i know her little crushes that she doesn't realize her crushes are pretty cute yeah 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 i want to talk a bit about the love interest that Anne meets in london and that is julia who is the colonel strips william it's his wife's kind of family friend they all kind of went to the same school together and they're um they're from a rich family but it's like their father was like a merchant so they got this whole thing of they're rich but they don't have like any kind of class or title any kind of like higher connections type thing um, and they i believe he made his money through like clothing or like wool or something like that but judy is like really into her fashion and it's mm-hmm. quite delightful to see is that when Anne goes to london she still got all the clothes that her mother like picked out for her like she'd never taken interest in her clothes and you kind of find out that she's been wearing these like gold and like yellow and red, really like ruffly dresses. And it was because like these were the favorite colors of Catherine. And Julia's like, these colors don't suit you <laughs> at all. They really wash you out. And let's get you some dresses that like actually suit you. And so it's quite nice her just getting these like dresses that actually suit her. And like, again, kind of adds to her sense of individuality and like sense of ownership in her body and her self and i think that's one of the, that's one of the kind of funny things that Catherine comments on again when she uh, goes back with all the like, clothes and how she's not in like the colors that Catherine would always put her in yes yes it's it's like a glow up which i love i love a good glow up <laughs> Yeah, I really liked how Julia was was super into clothes and all of that, but she also has this kind of masculine energy, I would say, you know, in a way. Like, she 
she is very it seems obvious right away that she's probably going to be the love interest you know what i mean because she's sort of um just a little bit outside her the parameters of her gender role a little bit in terms of just being like opinionated and quick to speak and i think like her laugh is described as being kind of loud <laughs> that kind of thing so i thought she was really well drawn and and a real compliment to Anne and that she was willing to ask questions and speak up for kind of herself and wasn't really entrenched. I mean, they're definitely part of society and seeking society, you know, but they're not quite as entrenched in this noble nobility. I don't even know if that's the right word, but all of this kind of grand family stuff that Anne knows and is kind of her whole world. So I thought that was that this character was well designed to kind of um, bring out the best in Anne and show her this kind of different side of of um, being, if you will. So yes, yeah, I and to like kind of go along with this sort of kind of masculine energy is that other characters comment that and in school she was really good at like music and instruments and drawing like all these there's that famous scene in Pride and Prejudice of like the Bingley sisters talking about like what a woman needs you know in order to be seen as accomplished and like they have mm-hmm. accomplishments and like Julia has these accomplishments she's very good at them but she just has no interest in pursuing them like while she's very good at it she just she doesn't want to draw, she doesn't want to sing, she doesn't want to play music, because it was all taught to her as a way of getting a husband and us to something that she has no interest in, and she, like, hates performing Yeah. People. And you find that, because eventually one of the conflicts, well, the kind of main conflict that Anne and Julia have is that whilst Anne wants her to, you know, they want to be together, the only way for that to happen, kind of in the situation they are in London is for basically like her to be Anne's kind of paid companion and she just can't face having that imbalance in her relationship so yeah. she she goes off and she marries a guy like an older man who her parents really wanted her to marry and you find out later that she kind of hated every moment because like he wasn't a cruel man but he again would always like get her to perform would always at parties get her to play you know the piano and like show off her embroidery and she was like I never cared about this kind of thing like why is my world so small that I'm taking enjoyment that this one noble woman said that my embroidery you know cushion was amazing like this isn't (laughs) what I take pleasure from yeah yeah I know it's so It's so sad because when they're having that conversation, I could really see where Julia was coming from. Like, she, she has, so, she's so insecure in a position of anything but marriage because she doesn't have her own stuff. Like, she doesn't have her own, um, her own ability to be, she doesn't have, she doesn't have autonomy. That is the word. The way that Anne has this opportunity to have autonomy. So Anne wants her to just trust that it'll all be okay. But I could I could sympathize with Julia being like, I don't know if I can do that, you know? Um, 
and that that fear I thought was understandable, but also um, really sad. I mean, I I thought that their parting felt it. I understood why it happened, which just made it um, made it more satisfying when spoiler alert, you know, things things kind of come back together for them later on. But yeah, that conflict was got to kind of the heart of the gender the gender challenge of being a woman at that time and the queerness aside just how few options you really had regardless of your socioeconomic status although of course that's a factor too so um the characters in these stories are are privileged but they're not without um i mean i mean they're not really free to choose their own lives most of the time wonder how common it was for um for something to be set up the way that the estate the rosings estate was in the books you know like is that a common was that at all common for women to be able to inherit family property like that do you know i have have no idea um i felt is it odd because you you get these you know situations things that miss bennett's worries about and then you get you know the later books and sensibility when it does actually happen to that family and you just like was it a law or something where it has to be this way but clearly it wasn't since rosings was able to do that so like why was rosings in that situation where it could have a female heir i don't See, know I like I watched a video about it donkeys years ago but I explained it and now i can't <laughs> remember a thing i don't know if it yeah i don't know if it was like a law or if it was just the way the state was set up by some prior ancestor, you know, it's like a, and it's is like it a what was quest whole, situation. It's this whole entailing thing as well, because I feel like yeah. I've read books before of people inheriting houses, but then it's entailed away. So like they can't set it. And so they're stuck with the burden of like trying to run it with like no money. So yeah, yeah, all that, all, all that crazy them. stuff you you people do over there or did. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think it... about um, inheritance. One of the things that I really enjoyed is that Anne decides she kind of have like a reconciliation with Darcy and with Elizabeth, and I, I think it's quite cute actually how Darcy and Anne's relationship turns out because she decides that. She's going to make Darcy's second son the heir to Rosings so that he's got a position in life so he doesn't kind of end up in the same position that Colonel Fitzwilliam was in. So he's got some prospect. He has the land to inherit. And so in order to kind of facilitate that, every year for a couple of months, Darcy and his uh, second son like stays at Rosings. And so they kind of have this like quite amicable relationship in the end where they're both kind of raising and teaching this young boy together who they kind of see as a well Darcy is (laughs) his father but Anne kind of comes to see him as like a son figure and like he is a person gets called on at the end when she's no very old and uh and is dying and we get this like lovely little vision of like her seeing everyone in her life so I thought that I was a really sweet relationship, and I really liked how her relationship with Darcy ended up like that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it was definitely 
Um, it was definitely like a way of honoring to, I thought, this wish that their um, mothers had had, you know? Like, they loved each other and wanted, um, you know, wanted the family and the property to all kind of stay linked. And so it did, you know? That was, I thought, like, a sweet way to accomplish that. And it also resolves that question of, I mean, that's hard even in modern life, like, um, and it, attaching yourself to the next generation in a way, if you, if you don't have biological children of your own, it's like, you have to affirmatively make a plan for that, you know? So I, I thought that was all very relatable, actually, for people reading who might be um, in the LGBTQ community, which I assume is a chunk of the readership, because I feel like you and I are this way. If it's sapphic, we're like 95% more likely to read it, because there's not as much of that <laughs> as you would think there would be out there to find and read. So Definitely. And I did you find out later on that um, second set, I believe he's called George, that he, he is, really, yes. yeah, he looks up to both Anne and, you know, her partner, Julia, as like, you know, another set of mothers to have. So he's just got like three very good mothers. He'll be, a, he'll be a good little man. Yeah, yeah. it's really sweet. And I mean, that's the other thing too, like they don't have to be his parents to be important and to love him and to be, um, you know, important adult figures and formative to him. I think that's a good reminder too. You know? So, gosh, like speaking of the romance, I thought the like the chemistry between them was was very sweet and all. Like I enjoyed all of those aspects of the book, but I I still feel like it's not. So much of the book is just about Anne. I mean, the romance is, is there, and it's definitely part of her having this satisfactory ending, but um, the parts of the book I enjoyed the most are probably the the whole, her, like, her taking control of her life in general and obviously shedding her um, dependence on laudanum is a huge part of that, but also just in general, sort of taking authority over her life. I found all of that to be the main aspect of the story that kept me really intrigued. And then I also really liked the style of the writing. It was just very kind of dreamy and whim and lyrical, especially the scenes where she's where she's high, basically. <laughs> and like the way that she experiences the world, the writing really enhanced that sense of really feeling how it would feel to be in that state all the time. I don't know what you think, but I found all of that to be really complimented by the author's style, her, like just yeah. her style. I really enjoyed it. Cause, and it definitely reflects kind of her relationship to Ro Rosings because she, when she is high, she often thinks that uh, Rosings is talking to her, that, you know, the house mm -hmm. as a whole is like talking and protecting her. And it kind of deepens this connection that she has to Rosings. You know, she really loves the place. And, you know, determined to take control of it. That she's almost kind of disappointed when she goes back. And she's 
you know, not on Lordom anymore, and she can no longer hear the voices of Rosine's talking to her, which is why in the very end scene, when she is dying, she's put on Lordom again, because she can't say no, because she's too weak to. And she kind of has this, like, final trip almost, where she can hear <laughs> Rosie's again, then she finds this comfort, and then she kind of goes on this, like, dreamlike tour of all the figures in her life and passing over them until she's finally reunited with Julia. Yeah, it's a it's a moving a moving ending. I feel like we, we've talked a lot about this book. I feel like I could go on <laughs> for, like, another couple of hours. There's, it's one of those books where, kind of, when you read out the plot, it doesn't seem very plotty, but because there's so much going on with Anne's character, there is just so much, and it's just all so well done. Yeah, really agreed. Is. Agreed. I probably will read it again and discover more when I do that. It's got a lot, um, a lot of nuance and a lot of, um, a lot to sort of um, unpack in 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 it. It's been fun talking to you about it. It has, yes. Uh, so yeah, I definitely. If you're a Pride and Prejudice fan, if you're if you dislike the time period, if you want a good kind of Regency book, you know about a woman coming into her own. It's really a delight. A really quick read as well. So yeah. Okay, uh, I think we did it. <laughs> uh, th- thank you to, to everyone who listened. Um, as we said earlier, we had the author in for a little Q and A chat. Although by the time that I released this, that would have been over. But if you ever want to pop in to chat to us or in future events when we have Q and As with authors, if you want to chat with them. Join our server. The link is in our link tree, which you can find on our Instagram. We're just at Queer Readers, anywhere you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, all that lovely stuff. And yeah, please join us. <laughs>